The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, today our show is about privacy and security. We're welcoming back one of our previous guests, a wonderful guy, Professor Colin Bennett. And before I tell you about him, we're going to be talking about his new book called Security Games, Surveillance and Control at Mega Events. He's actually the editor, and he wrote a wonderful introduction. He has experts who write in this wonderful book that he sent me. And uh, so let me tell you a little bit about him. Uh, since 1986, Dr. Colin Bennett has taught in the Department of Political Science at the University of Victoria, Canada, where he's now a professor. What a gorgeous city. Wow, I've been there. From 1999 to 2000, he was a fellow at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government in Boston. And then in 2007, he was a visiting fellow at the Center for the Study of Law and Society at the University of California, right in Berkeley in Northern California. And in 2010... Uh, he has been a visiting professor at the School of Law at the Univers- University of South Wales. Wait till you hear his accent. It's great. And he had spoken to us before. So he does a lot of different research. His research has focused on the comparative analysis of surveillance technologies and privacy protection policies at both the domestic and international levels. And in addition to many, many scholarly and newspaper articles, he has published five books, and we've talked a little bit before about one of his, a couple of his books, but they are Regulating Privacy, Data Protection, and Public Policy in Europe and the United States. That was one of them. Visions of Privacy, Policy Choices for the Digital Age, The Governance of Privacy, Policy Instruments in the Digital Age, I remember talking about that, and The Privacy Advocates, Resisting the spread of surveillance. And then uh, this another one, playing the identity card, surveillance, security, and identification in global perspectives. And he has completed policy reports on privacy, um, protection for the Canadian government and the Canadian Standards Association, the Privacy Commissioner of Canada, the European Commission, and the U.K. Information Commissioner, and he's currently the co-investigator of a large, major collaborative research initiative grant entitled The New Transparency, Surveillance and Social Sorting. Boy, we're going to have to talk about that as well. So I want to thank you so much, Colin, for joining us um, all the way from beautiful Canada. Thank you, Marie, and thank you for that lovely introduction. Well, we have this new book, 
which is fascinating. And it's a little scary, I think, too, called Security Game Surveillance and Control at Mega Events. Tell me, how is it that you put this whole thing together? Um, well, we, uh, it was really inspired by the uh, events surrounding the Winter Olympics up in Vancouver in our part of the world. And uh, so my colleague uh, Kevin Haggerty and myself, Kevin's from the University of Alberta, decided to organize a conference in Vancouver just a couple of months before the Games um, in which we invited experts on security and surveillance at big mega events um, to deliver papers on, on these issues and to share their experiences and lessons about how um, security had been administered at previous Olympic Games, at World Cups, soccer, soccer World Cups, and other events. And uh, as a result of this, we decided that it would be a good idea to put it all together in, in a book. And so that's what's coming out with, with Routledge uh, in April. It's fascinating, fascinating. Let me ask you, kind of let's step back a little. You've, you've written a lot about privacy and surveillance. How is it that you got involved in that whole area? It's, it's you know, it's a blossoming yeah, area. <laughs> it's, a good, it's a good question. Um, I mean, like other people who, who write about this, I mean, I, I became interested when I was a graduate student. And um, I realized, I'm a, I'm a political scientist by training. I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a sociologist, and I don't have any technical training. But I, I did realize that this was an important political issue at the time, and continues to be. And that, um, you know, it really speaks to some fundamental political issues about power how individuals are manipulated by organizations through the personal information that's collected about them. And so I began researching and reading about this subject over 25 years ago, and I just can't give it up. You know, it's so endlessly fascinating. Um, it raises all kinds of really interesting questions about new technologies, about culture, about the attitudes of different uh, citizens, both young and old, um, and um, so, you know, I've just continued on researching on this, this issue. Um, but again, um, looking at it not so much from the point of view of the legal protections in force and not so much from the point of view of the technology, but what this says about our, our political systems and what it says about our, the larger uh, distribution of power in society and how that's being shifted by the massive ability to collect and process uh, personal data these days. Yeah, it seems that whoever has the information has the power, right? Yeah, that's that's correct. And 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 with new technologies, more and more information be, can, can be collected by more and more people and distributed um, to a vast array of, of, of organizations. And I'm, you know, you talked about this a great deal on your program. Um, but what do you do about it? You know, what laws do you need to bring in to protect citizens? Are laws enough? No, we don't think so. Uh, you need other protections as well, technological protections, marketplace protections. And how should these all <clears throat> be seen as a, as a package of, um, uh, of, of regulations and, um, and a package of, of protections which can, which, can, which can really redress the balance between the large organization, public and private, who's, that's processing lots of information, and the, and the vulnerable subject? the vulnerable individual whose interests and rights can be compromised when their personal information is abused. 
Yes, and I think a huge issue is that most of the time we don't even know when it's being collected. <laughs> you know, we you know when these entities, whether it's government or whether it's these uh, commercial entities, are collecting this information, it's not transparent. Yeah. So that I think is the is the huge vulnerability of the ordinary person is they don't even know what's being collected. They don't even know what's being seen. And so it's, it's very insidious. And then when they find out they're, they're impotent basically to do much about it, at least in our country. Well, that's, that's the distinction I think um, between the United States and, and other countries. I mean, at least up here in Canada and in most other advanced industrial science societies, there are comprehensive laws in place and you do have some rights of redress if basic privacy principles are not being not being uh, adhered to, um, but in the United States it's a bit it's a bit different. Uh, yeah, and that and that transition to a situation where information is collected without uh, your awareness um, didn't used to be the case. You know, 30, 40 years ago, most of the time when you were giving up personal information, you were aware of it because there was an active process by which you were you know, filling in a form or giving that information. Now it's, it's less obvious. Now it's, it's, it's more surreptitious um, and um, really demands um, a great deal of vigilance, not only the, on, the, on the part of citizens, but also, you know, some strong legal protections so that organizations know that when they are collecting information about you, that they're forced to actually be transparent about the purposes for which it's being used. Exactly. So in this new book, which looks wonderful here, uh, you have lots of different chapters and different people. Why don't you tell us, uh, you brought these wonderful experts together. Why don't you tell us a little bit about each of the chapters and, and the objective each, of each one of those? Well, the, the objective really is to see whether there are any patterns. And one of the one of the the key issues is you know what's happened since nine eleven, and Olympic Games, Winter Olympics, Summer Olympics, and also the Soccer World Cup have just become this this visible manifestation of this huge you know uh, global celebration for sport, and therefore assumed to be a primary target for for terrorists. Consequently, as a result of uh, those fears. Um, Security measures have expanded, including increasingly sophisticated and intrusive forms of surveillance, and the expenses have skyrocketed. And so now, um, you know, we, we apparently spent a billion Canadian dollars on security at the Vancouver Olympics, and nobody really knows the true figure. So the, the, the purpose of the book overall was to try to understand why these trends have occurred, and, um, you know, there's a complex series of... Um, uh, forces, I think, behind these trends, but also uh, what implications does it have for our democracies, for our liberties, and also what we might do about it. So we're not attempting, we, we do not intend to be anti-Olympics or anti these mega events, but the purpose is to draw awareness uh, to, a, to a, you know, a rather worrying trend here, which suggests that there will be fewer and fewer cities and countries in the world if they have to meet these extensive security obligations that would be able to, to host an Olympic Games or a World Cup. And we think that's really troubling. and We think that it's, it's antithetical to the spirit of the games and the spirit of the, the sporting events 
um, if there's so much uh, security and surveillance that has to attend these events nowadays. So, to get to your question, we have a series of chapters on Olympic Games uh, in Greece, in Athens, in, in 2004, uh, in the series of um, series of, of events that have occurred in Japan over the years, including the World Cup, on the London 2012 uh, Olympic Games, um, on Winter Olympics in Italy, uh, a couple of chapters in Vancouver, and also on Soccer World Cup um, in, in, um, uh, in, in Europe, in Germany. Um, and, and at the same time, there's, there's other analysis of events such as those in Sydney, in Australia, or uh, South Africa, or Beijing, uh, which are integrated into the other chapters so that the reader can, can get a, a, an overall picture of where this has been going and what the implications are. And, you know, I mean, is there any way that we really could provide complete security at these mega events? No. Um, and, uh, but it depends a bit on what you mean by complete security. Um, the, the problem is that, you know, nobody wants anything to go wrong, right? Right. If a, city like, if a city like Vancouver hosts an Olympic Games, everybody wants it to go off without any problem. Right. Any problem whatsoever. And, and that's understandable. But then uh, security consultants are employed to figure out what could possibly go wrong. And the only thing that limits their judgment is their imagination. Because an, an infinite variety of things could go wrong. There's an infinite variety of individuals that could do an infinite number of bad things to an infinite number of targets. It really is a, a limitless potential yes. um, and a lim limitless range of risks that um, you, know, you would have to protect against if you're going to get complete security. So these risk assessments are done, and um, then the only real limitation upon what measures are put in place are financial. Yes. Um, and uh, consequently, um, budgets increase. Um, uh, event planners are told that, okay, we've got to protect against that, we have to protect against that, and therefore you get a, a long, 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 long list of, of, of risks that have to be mitigated, and that's what uh, produces the not only the cost overruns, but also some troubling implications for personal privacy and for our civil liberties. Right. And then it becomes cost prohibitive for the people to it go becomes, and it watch. Becomes cost, it becomes cost prohibitive. And then when, when citizens see that something is done, they see, for example, that there's now extensive video surveillance throughout the center of the city, um, you know, which is paid for in order to protect the Olympic Games. Then what happens is that that has a legacy. It's still there after the games are gone. There, in some cases, yes. Um, and they're taken over by law, local law enforcement. And people then re begin to regard that as a normal state of affairs. Um, the same kind of thing that we see in our airports. And so our argument really is that these mega events, the security games, give a boost. They give a boost to security processes and surveillance, um, which then become the new norm, the new... Um, way that people have to um, engage with their communities and, um, and, and because they become used to those, those, those intrusions and they, and they then think nothing of them in uh, normal circumstances when the games have moved on elsewhere.
or they decide they don't want to go. You know, I'm not going to the Olympics because I don't want to go through all that and I don't want to subject myself to that. So, you know, I'll stay home and watch it. And then then what happens to the communities that we're expecting all these people to come and buy things and stay in the hotels, right? Well, the pro- the, but the problem is that the legacies apply to those people who went to the games and those people who don't. Right, right. right. So, um, the, 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 the legacies are in terms of enhanced security, new databases that, that, that are put up, new levels, of communica- new levels of sharing of data between different law enforcement uh, agencies, both, uh, both inside a country and outside a country. Uh, new laws get passed, uh, which you know, tend, to have, uh, tend to endure as well. And, and, and different attitudes then develop about the kind of thing that's necessary in order for an event like this to go off without incident. And so after the games, uh, nothing, uh, thank God, happened in Vancouver. But was that because of all the money we spent on security? Well, you know, you, to talk to the security experts, you'd, you'd, you'd say, they, they would say, well, the reason why there was no major terrorist incident in Vancouver was, was because we spent all of this money and made all of this effort into security. Because right. nobody knows whether, you know, whether that actually had an effect. Nobody knows what would have happened otherwise. Right. And so, you know, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And, of course, if something had happened in Vancouver... Then the argument would have been, well, we didn't spend enough. We right. didn't do enough. We've got, to, we've, got to, we've got to ratchet up the security and the surveillance in different ways. And so, you know, one way and another, whether something happens or something doesn't happen, there's this steady process by which, you know, there's uh, ever more extensive levels of, of, of surveillance and control that, that, are, that are visible at these, at these different events. And they're using fear, right? I mean, the fear is the 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 expectation that people we we have to do this. We absolutely have well, to do it, this, and they and it instills the fear. If you don't do this, fear of somebody getting hurt. All, this is all driven by by fear, which some of it is legitimate, obviously, because we are there are targets. Then, right? Well, it's 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 driven by it, it, you know it's it's driven by a sort of steady process of concern that's. That's, that's, that's been in the media for a very long time now about um, the potential for terrorism in particular, but other threats as well. Uh, and then that gets ratcheted up when a city or a country pays host to one of, these, one of these events and global attention is on that place. Because, I mean, the one thing that, that um, cities like Vancouver want is for everybody to go away with a warm, fuzzy feeling about Vancouver and British Columbia. Right, and um, come back and, and visit and, and, and spend and money, yeah. Uh, and therefore, the, the, the Olympic Games feeds into the place branding that's incredibly important for our cities these days. Right. And so it's not only a question of fear, it's also a question of the motivations of local officials, local business officials, local political officials, officials who are desperate for these events to go off without incident, and and will make sure, you know, within the budget limitations that they have, that everything possible is done um, for 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 the for people to go away from a place like Vancouver with a with a wonderful impression about what their city is like and what our community is like, as you kindly said at the beginning of the program. So, the. The reality is, though, with a lot of this security and the surveillance, and I'm thinking of even 
um, in in London when they had the underground, they had the surveillance. They could find the people afterwards, but it isn't always prevention. It's just, uh, wouldn't you say that a lot of this security measures and the surveillance won't really prevent, but it will help you find the person afterward. I mean, that seems to be the case. Am well, I correct? That's often, that's often the argument about video surveillance, that it, it doesn't do a particularly good job as a preventive mechanism, but it's, it's mainly in terms of after-the-fact controls. But one of the things I want to emphasize is that the range of surveillance measures at, at these, these events is not just confined to, to CCTV. Uh, or, or video surveillance, as we call it in North America. There are a range of mechanisms that, that have been tried. Um, um, radio frequency identification devices on tickets, for example, to, to, to make sure you know, that there's knowledge of who is actually buying tickets. But wouldn't that also be, see, if they found out that's who bought a ticket, it's still after the fact. I don't see how that's going to protect. Oh, it, oh no, a lot, of it, a lot of it is after the fact. That's yes, what I'm saying. It, I mean, even if you have RFIDs, you have the biometric, you take a picture of somebody that goes by, I, I just am I'm at a loss to understand how often this would be really well, one of, protective. One of, the things that is, one of the things that is supposed to be preemptive is the sharing of data on suspects, the sharing of data in, in advance on uh, people that are, are supposedly security risks, uh, like no-fly lists, for example. Right. Um, now, those have, their, those have their, their, um, their limitations, to say the least. Right, because they just have um, so things, many people the in there, that, yeah. One of the things that's documented in our book is, is the extent to which mega-events produce um, enhanced sharing of these kind of databases Football hooligans is another example. Um, you know, uh, so soccer, as you as you as you know, is a, is a is an event that's attracted a lot of you know undesirable types and hooligans and so on. And so there's a database, an international database of soccer hooligans that is then shared with various various event organizers. And so so it's not only the visible manifestations of surveillance that we have to worry about. It's also the less transparent things that go on behind the scenes, right. uh, the, the connections between national and international law enforcement, uh, the connections between those bodies and uh, Olympic committees, local and international Olympic committees, and how the, all of this builds uh, a network of, of databases, which supposedly um, is intended to make sure that the bad, bad guys you know, don't get anywhere near the site of these events. And there's but, secret you know, databases. And, and, and right, there's secret databases so that you don't know if you're on that database. And if it's an error, you don't know how to get off of that database. I mean, that's how it is with the no-fly list in our country and the, and the watch list. I mean, you yeah. don't know how you got on there. I mean, and, and you don't know how to get off. And, and you try and get off, and you'll never really get off. And yep. there's the no-buy list through the Treasury Department. And then, the, you know, you're talking about this, like you said, not only mega events, we're talking about mega databases, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think, yeah, I mean, that's true. And it's, it's also uh, quite true in Canada as well, because we have a similar, similar system. Um, but, you know, if you take all of the, the surveillance measures and all of the privacy issues that you might have talked about on, on your show over the last five years and, and think about, you know, what... 
what happens when a particular city or one particular location has all of this pressure to make sure that the event goes off without incident. Right. There is an enormous pressure then, uh, not only from officials, not only from local officials, also from international officials like the International Olympic Committee that now imposes extraordinary conditions, security conditions, on any uh, city or country that wants to host one of these events. And they have to then step up up to the plate, spend the money. Um, And so there's just this enormous set of of forces that's come together um, and and push the the level of security and the levels of surveillance to new levels, which tends to endure after the event is finished. That tends to be the, the, the overall message of the book that we put together here. Let's talk about some of these things, some of these privacy invasions that maybe my audience doesn't really, are not really aware of. And you started out talking about, for example, RFIDs and tickets. And for those of you who don't know what RFIDs, we have talked about them before on the show. But if you missed that show, that's a radio frequency identifier. So why don't we talk about the privacy implications of having those in the ticket and what that means? What is the worry, Colin? Well, this was what, this was an example. This was something that was actually done at um, in, in, in Beijing, um, and it's a it's a locational device. It's a crowd um, uh, management device mainly, and th- it's not necessarily an invasive um, a procedure unless the the RFID is in fact linked to an individual's identity. Um, and so, in fact, in Vancouver, they did not use this. They decided it was too it was too costly. Um, but, but that's uh, that's less costly than putting a radio frequency identifier and injecting it in you, which you know, like my poor dog has it. Of course, that's well, why I don't lose so. my dog. <laughs> I wouldn't want it in my kids. Yes, may, maybe so. But you know, um, a law enforcement wants to know who's attending these events. You know, and so it's not entirely clear to me as the extent to which the the ticketing agencies that are selling tickets for these events, you know were giving up information to law enforcement about who actually was attending. Right. Um, I mean, other, other issues we've seen is, is the, these, these events have dramatic and long-term impacts on the cities themselves. Well, let's go back for just a second, because I think what you brought up, I need to have us clarify. So yeah. if I buy six tickets, all right, and they're under yeah. my cre- credit card, so, and that those radio frequency identifiers are linked to those tickets, and those tickets will link to my identification and maybe my credit card, right? Uh, they could do, yes. Yes, yes and could. and so without that, any difficulty, yeah, yeah. With, easily, right? Yeah. And and um, but you won't necessarily know. You'll know me, but you not, don't necessarily know who went with me. Well, not necessarily, no. Right. Um, but but uh, the the whole issue about RFID and the whole worry about it is that it it, it not only identifies who you are, but where you are at any exactly. point. Okay? Yes. Yes. And so and so that that's one of the one of the issues that's 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 come out of the the analysis that um, that has been done in the U.S. by a group called Caspian and uh, Catherine Albrecht. Uh, yes, uh, we've uh, had her on the show. Yes. Uh-huh. Yes, I, I think you. I think you have. But you know, most of the time, the <clears throat> the identification devices are, are are not personalized, or they're not, or at least they're not active. Maybe they're not activated after you leave a, a particular store. But sometimes they can be, and therefore that raises all kinds of issues about their potential use for for law enforcement and their potential use for for for, for marketing. 
Um, and so this was, in fact, tried at the Beijing Olympics. Um, it's, it, I don't know, and I believe it's going to be tried in London. I uh, was not entirely clear about that yet. They decided it wasn't worth doing it in, um, in Vancouver. But, you know, it's just one, one little example of where, you know, it, it's, it's, if it's done a couple of times, then it's, then it's, then it's regarded as, as an expected thing to happen. But I, again, and I guess the question always is, how is this going to prevent terrorism? How you know that's my question. You always well, have to link back to that. How is it going to prevent? Maybe it'll help you find someone afterward. Maybe not. Maybe I'm missing something in in the protection. Well, uh, well, it's one of the one of the problems here is that is that the the risks that get defined at these occasions is not just about terrorism. Um, because um, if you if you want to have a, an Olympic Games or a World Cup that goes off without incident, there are a variety of different behaviors and images that people might see on the television screen. I got you. That would that would affect you know the the warm feeling that people would have about that place. Okay. What's happened over time that this, is that there's a there's been a an extensive list of things that law enforcement and, and games organizers do not want to see. Why don't you Why don't you mention some of those so that we get um, okay? Um, homelessness. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, um, um, panhandling. Right. Um, squeegeeing of of you know on 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 corners of of all kinds of things like that. Protest. Uh, we had a bylaw in Vancouver that that was passed which prevented um, uh, anti games signs being um, displayed on you know prominent. Um, prominent sites for the games, such as the, such as the, you know, in, on the ski hill or no, in those kind of places, um, and so, you know, the, the the number of things that get defined as a risk when you are trying to put together an event in which nothing should go wrong. Okay, so it isn't it isn't just it's not just about terrorism. It's yeah, it's not just about right. violence. It's about it's about PR. You're saying it's about it's a, it's about PR and it's about promoting the brand. Right. Of the city and the country, and there's certain things which are assumed to be, you know, not uh, conducive to promoting that nice feeling that people would have. So, if they um, do surveillance on the street and they see that there, there was um, and, and, and a homelessness, so, and so, then they're going to get these people off the street and move them to the other side of town. Right. So, so the, ah. total, the total security effort is, you know, it is about terrorism, but the the, the real effort is directed towards some of these other behaviors and practices that people, that, that, that law enforcement would find um, unsavory, okay? And so more and more behaviors get defined in those ways. And therefore, the security effort that's, and the surveillance measures that are, um, uh, uh, that are put in place are as much to deal with those kind of problems, protest, dissent, uh, unreasonable behavior, um, um, antisocial behavior, et cetera, et cetera as it is to prevent, you know, the full-scale terrorist incident, which, by the way, we've never really had at one of these events since, uh, since uh, Atlanta. Israel, yeah, with the Israelis, right? yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, and really, the only really big one was in Munich in 70. Right, that's what I was thinking of the Israelis that were killed, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Wow. So, so, you know, I mean, like, the uh, tickets with an RFID aren't going to do much... Um, 
with regard to these homeless people on the street or the people protesting because they didn't even buy the ticket. You know, I mean, I mean, it seems to me that when they're thinking these things through, they should say, you know, just to throw out a security measure because it sounds cool. You know, well, what specifically is that security measure meant to do? I think that's the issue, right? Well, and and this is why this is why a whole number of consultants are, are, are employed. And the Olympic organizers learn from um, others in, 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 who have dealt with these issues before in other times and places. And so, you know, there's a, there's a, um, you know, there's a, there's a community of international security experts that go from one event to another and sell their expertise and their, and their technologies. And so that's another motivation that's going going on here. There's there's a lot of people that make money out of security. I was just going to say it's a and profit motive. Yeah. If they can demonstrate if they can demonstrate that their security procedures work, you know, in at an Olympic Games or a World Cup where the whole world is watching, then they know that you know they've done something special, and they know that they they can they can they can really you know work on the big stage as it were. Wow. So you know you have that motivation as well. Um, but I mean, here's, an, here's some other other issues. I mean, yeah, we talked about video RFID surveillance, yeah. perimeter fencing. Uh, I mentioned that you know cities have been been fenced off. Um, in 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 some cities, they have what are called fan zones, the designation of special zones for collective viewing of events, so that they can regulate fans. Right. Uh, vehicle vehicle monitoring. Um, what what vehicles um, can come into and outside of various areas. Um, Certain biometric identification uh, measures used, and let's um, talk about that. Some of the, let's let's kind of clarify some of these. When you let's go back to the vehicle, the vehicle identification. They take a picture of the driver's license. I mean, the uh, car license, or yes, that's right. Yes, that's right. For camera 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 protection uh, and 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 um, significant uh, measures for 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 making sure that only certain kinds of vehicles can go into into um, high security areas. Mm-hmm. Um, and all protected by camera camera technology. Another thing is criminal background checks for employees, volunteers, athletes. Um, there's a lot of a lot of things happen behind the scene um, for for employees at the games, for volunteers at the games. Um, background checks um, and and not to mention, of course, the extensive drug testing that goes on and has gone on for a number of years now for for athletes. Um, and uh, the regulation of protest, the regulation of dissent. Um, in Vancouver, there was overhead unmanned aerial vehicles, you know, uh, satellite, uh, 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 sending satellite images, um, oh uh, images up to satellites and into, into central um, communications, uh, law enforcement uh, uh, centers. Um, and then you uh, might be and, sitting... And then, of course, you've yeah. got all the measures that, that are enhanced at our airports as well, you know? Right. Um, the full body scanners and so on and so forth. Right. And so what, you know, what, what we say in this book is that each mega event now really exhibits a, a total security effort, which is, pretty, which is akin to planning in, in a time of war. Right, you know? right. Planning and deployment at a time of war, where law enforcement's involved, military is involved uh, in, in Vancouver on both sides of the, the border, and um, we, we quote one Chinese official who declared in um, February 2008 that they had entered, quote, the combat phase. Oh, no. The combat phase of their preparations for the Beijing Olympics. Oh. I mean, it is that total. Um, and, um, you know, where is it all going? That's the question. Yeah. 
Where is it? Well, let's go back to some of these things like biometrics. For those of you who are listening who aren't sure what biometrics is, it's some part of your body that's used to identify you, whether it's your fingerprint, your iris scan, you know, your retina scan, your facial scan, certain, yeah. And, and so that's, if pictures are taken of you, like now in California, are, we have uh, biometric photos that are taken of us for our um, driver's license. Okay. So, so, and we're used to uh, fingerprints and, you know, let's talk about the dangers of that. I think a lot of people say, oh, so what? So if they take my picture, what does that matter? So let's talk about what those dangers are. Well, there are, there are many different types of biometric and some are more secure than others. Um, And some are more accurate than others. And some are more accurate than others. And so it's not always the case that biometrics are necessary an invasion of privacy. But the, the real key issue is what is the, what is the, the database backup and what yes. controls over that database. Um, and, so, and who has access to those images? And are they encrypted and so on and so forth? Um, some biometrics are inherently more intrusive than others. Right. Um, some, some, some biometrics, uh, you know, the fingerprint itself, you know, now more and more people are used to giving their, giving their fingerprint. Um, but, um, you know... The, but there's the, false positives and false negatives with there's those. There's false positives, there's false negatives, there's no perfect biometric. Right. Um, and, um, and but, but, you know, this has become the, um, the you know, the, the new mode of identification because of the inherent weaknesses in our, in, our, in our names as identifiers or numbers or passwords as identifiers, um, which people forget. And so, again, you know, when a community like British Columbia hosts an Olympic Games, you know, if there's a, if there's a plan somewhere, you know, around the bureaucracy to um, get some enhanced biometric identification, the Olympic Games just gives that another reason for doing it, right? It gives that extra reason, that extra motivation for, for doing something that may have occurred otherwise, but might have occurred later and might have occurred with less, um, you know... Rigorous, less rigorous. Less, less rigorous. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's, it's, it's not as if, you know, that, that it, it, just gives the, it just gives a boost, right? It gives a boost to technologies and practices that, you know... Might, have ex- might exist in other places, might have been debated for other reasons, but boy, the Olympic Games has come along, so that provides a good reason for doing it now. Yes, we have to jump okay. into this immediately, and, yeah. and this is like an right. exigent circumstance. And, and the, full body right. scanners, the full body scanners at airports is another example of that. Yes, which I always refuse to do. <laughs> so I have to go and stand in the line and get patted down, but I, I refuse, you know, to yeah. do that. So, so we so that's, talked so that's about generally the pattern, yeah. Yeah. So we talked about the RFIDs, which can be little, just little tiny. They can be like you know the head of a pin, and and they can track you, and you don't even know that they're in there. Like most people that's wouldn't right. even know that their tickets had this RFID, and if they keep carrying it around and the ticket is not deactivated, then basically if you carry that old ticket around. And, and just because it was kind of exciting because you got to go to some game, um, you're basically carrying this around and you could be followed. If, That's right. Yeah. Yes. And people yes. don't realize that. Yeah. There's no, there's no limitations to the technology there except the, the cost and the, and the, 
and the risk assessment and stuff but, uh, that, that's done of whether whether or not the the application of this technology is worth the cost and is is you know is likely to prevent uh, is likely to reduce risk. And then you know when we're talking about biometrics, let's say like you were talking about that they had aerial views, and I don't know if they were taking biometric pictures or something. But what if I'm uh, unlucky enough to have uh, bought a ticket and I ended up in the middle of all these uh, rebel rousers? You know, I didn't know that I was going to end up in the middle of all these people who are troublemakers, but. You know, I'm a dummy or I bought them from somebody else and I'm in the middle of everybody. And now they're all their biometric faces are on something and I'm right in the middle of them. And then I have, you know, I mean, am I going to be seen as one of the rabble rousers? Well, that's that's a danger. And there are examples of that in other countries. When you use video surveillance accompanied with facial recognition software, uh, which can then be linked to, um, you know, other databases, you know, which may or may not be accurate. Uh, that's 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 one of the the, the huge the huge risks here. Um, so 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 you know what what is maybe done for you know legitimate crowd control measures you know has all these other risks. And one of the things that happened in Vancouver is they didn't want to prevent uh, dissent. They didn't want to prevent protest because you know. Vancouver was the first Olympic Games after Beijing, and we wanted to be seen as a place that was, you know, respectable democracy and, right. and so on and so forth. That was part of the brand. You know, that's all part of the, the brand. You know, where we're, we have this free country uh, image around the world yeah. as being a, as being a, 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 a strongly democratic country that respects civil liberties. Right. At the same time, you know, they did not want all these sort of uns- all these protesters, you know, spoiling the spoiling the fun of everybody else. So they created these protest zones in different parts of the city. <laughs> so that any, anybody that wanted to go and protest about this, that, and the other could do that, but that they wouldn't be, they wouldn't be you know, disrupting the, you know, the, 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 the games themselves, nor would they be seen on television when the games were being broadcast. Interesting. So, so you've got this zone that kind of zone that was, was protected. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, don't know that, I don't know that they were ever used. I think most people just sort of gave up, <laughs> you know, and said, no, that's just pointless. Interesting. Um, but the regulation of protest and dissent at the time when the games were going on was really quite rigorous. Right. We, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. You're listening to Privacy Piracy, and I'm the host, Mari Frank. And we have a wonderful guest who we have had on before, Dr. Colin Bennett, who has been a professor of political science at the University of Victoria. Where, and he is, um, oh gosh, he's been a fellow at Harvard. He's also been a visiting fellow at Berkeley for the study of law and society over there. He's done so many things, and he has several books. We're talking right now about this fascinating new book that he has, and that the name of that book is Security Games. And he has written also five other five books: uh, Regulating Privacy, uh, Data Protection, and Public Policy in Europe and the United States, Visions of Privacy, Policy Choices for Digital Age, The Governance of Privacy, Policy Instruments in the Digital Age. The Privacy Advocates, Resisting the Spread of Surveillance, 
and playing the identity card, surveillance, security, and identity, and he, identity in global perspectives. And this book, I think, is, is really fascinating because you think about all these mega events, whether it's, you know, the Olympics or, the, you know, or Wimbledon or any of these places. You know, you want to go, you want to have fun, and yet they want the, the country to look good because there's a lot of PR. So this book, Security Games, Surveillance, and Control at Mega Events. And, it, you know, we're talking about the impact of these mega events as well. So I wanted to ask you also, you know, when we're, when we're talking about, we've talked about biometrics, which could be used. We talked about RFIDs. What about, is there any, you know, I know you're living in a country that has a privacy commission. Canada is wonderful. Now, you're, are you originally from England? Yes, that's right. Because I could tell for that wonderful accent, you almost sound like you're part of the royal family over there. It's gorgeous. Um, oh. <laughs> <laughs> are you going to the, the wedding, <laughs> you know? No. <laughs> <laughs> but you have such a fabulous, such a wonderful voice, Colin, and what a great accent. But you're living in a country that I think, you know, the, your privacy commissioners, you've got a lot of respect for privacy. You do far better than the United States, absolutely. But when you're talking about, you know, the Vancouver games and you're talking about all these other games, when they do collect this for this one purpose, you know, what about the privacy principles that when you collect for one purpose, you're not supposed to use it for another purpose? Where does that all come from and go? Well, um, good question. Um, I think, you know, one of the things that your listeners, you know, perhaps should understand to begin with is that, you know, we're a federal country and therefore there's only so much that the uh, federal privacy commissioner can do to regulate the practices of provincial organizations. So we also have, you know, provincial commissioners in British Columbia right. and Alberta and Ontario, etc., which have. And we've actually had your Ontario privacy commissioner on our show. Yeah. On, yeah. yeah, she's and, wonderful. And, and, yeah, and so and so the the um, you know there, there's this complicated jurisdictional issue up here, but I think one of the things that we we kind of concluded is that when it comes to law enforcement and when it comes to you know the overwhelming. Um, uh, effort at you know total security, um, it does tend to trump in people's minds any concern about civil liberties and privacy. And I think the privacy commissioners up here were had their hands tied. Really, um, they had a few successes, and they certainly were listened to by the um, integrated security uh, unit that was um, responsible for Vancouver security. But um, you know. Uh, in, in terms of actually um, changing anything, in terms of really making a difference to what would have happened anyway, I can't say that they were particularly successful. Uh, one thing that did happen was that the cam- many of the cameras that were um, deployed in downtown Vancouver have now gone away. Um, they were of a mobile nature, and they were then taken elsewhere. Um, to Toronto, I think, and so some of those did come did come down. Um, but, but what about what they already collected? What about all of the video and all of the pictures that well, they already collected? Well, that, that is that is subject that is subject to our privacy laws. They should only be collecting information for you know for, for specified purposes. Right. Um, but and and you know there's there was a if if uh, want to go to the privacy commissioner's website, there's there's a page up there about privacy in the Vancouver Olympics. 
and reminding uh, everybody involved that they are subject to our laws and they should not be collecting information indiscriminately. Uh, they should not be um, sharing it with, with um, uh, you know, unnecessarily. Um, but there's always these, these very broad law enforcement exemptions in privacy. Right, right. And that's the, that's the problem. You know, if you can make a justification that this kind of collection of data is necessary for law enforcement or for security, then that, then that creates um, so some broad latitude to, um, you know, do what they think is necessary, um, especially... Uh, on occasions like this, where there's so much overwhelming pressure to make sure that that um, the, the the games go ahead without without incident, right? But like, if somebody's homeless, that isn't really necessarily law enforcement. Do you know what I'm saying? No. So if you're collecting information on homeless people and and you're keeping that database that you know that they're homeless and you want to make sure that they're not going to be seen on the TV. I mean, that I don't see how you're going to get um, unless there I guess if you have some laws that you can't be sleeping on the street. You know, I mean, they have that like in Laguna Beach. You can't sleep on the sleep on the street. Yes. Well, there were some emergency provisions. There were some temporary provisions that that were that were brought in, which allowed um, uh, local 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 law enforcement officers to move people along, um, you know, and, and to clear them out of areas which were, you know, going to be, you know, prime areas for the, for the games themselves or where there was going to be broadcasting. So there was some, there was some enhanced abilities to do those kind of things, enhanced abilities for pat-downs. Um, but they were, they were supposed to be temporary. Um, and, um, but the, the BC Civil Liberties Association had a lot of complaints about what our law enforcement people did up here. And it left a, a bit of a nasty taste. And there was a lot of, a lot of uh, media attention to this as well. There was some feeling in the media that they had gone too far um, and that it wasn't conveying the kind of impression that BC and Vancouver and Canada really wanted to convey to, to the world. And so they sort of backed off to some extent. Um, but it's... Um, yeah, it's a PR. Uh, it's terribly it's, difficult. Yeah. It's terribly difficult for civil liberties organizations and privacy commissioners to win the debate, to win the the, 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 the minds of the people when so much is, is invested and so many people just want this to go off without hitch and are willing to, you know, go 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 the extra mile and to endure uh, greater difficulties and greater um, inconveniences in order to make sure that the games are successful. We're speaking with Professor Colin Bennett, and he is up in gorgeous Victoria, Canada. He's a British, uh, originally from England, and he is the editor, and he's been a, a author of many, many books, but he's the editor and written and wrote the introduction to security games, surveillance, and control at mega events. And the reason this is so important, because it really infiltrates everything that we do, wherever you're going to have these mega events. So how do you think this is going to affect these issues of security trumping privacy and civil liberties at, at, you know, even when there is no direct nexus. <laughs> how, how will this affect future events, whether it's, you know, the tennis open or whatever it is where we have these mega events? How, yeah. how is it going to affect, do you think? Yes, well, I think it's, it's important to stress that it's not just our book really focuses on 
sporting events, hence right. the, you know the, the analogy to games, right? Right, right. Um, but 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 you know it, it it also applies to summits, G20 summits, G8 summits, and so on, and a, and a variety of and maybe of, rock concerts. I mean, I mean, oh, I've sure, been to rock sure. concerts when you get the the Stones, the Rolling Stones there. You know, I mean, you got that's a mega event. Sure. Yes. Um, uh, those 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 efforts tend to be you know so temporary. The, the interesting thing about the Olympic Games and the World Cup is that they take place over an extended period of time. Right, right. You've got days and, and days, yeah. And, and therefore you've got to secure an ex, a, a larger space, a larger place, um, over you know, a two-, three-week period. And um, that's a significant investment. Uh, it's not just like a, a rock concert. It's not, and you know, G8 and G20 summits often just last for two or three days, and so they tend to be more temporary. But with respect to the soccer World Cup, those are also held in different cities around around the nation, in South Africa or in, in Germany or um, uh, where is it going to be next? In Russia, I believe. And so that that requires integrated security efforts in different cities, both nationally and locally, um, which which create you know even greater um, problems for integration and greater needs for sharing data about 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 individuals and about um, potential uh, risks to security. So what what do you think are the legal legacies then behind these large-scale surveillance and security measures? What what do you think are going to be I know you're a political science professor but yeah. but you know there science and law really interact all over the place. So Yes. So yeah. what, what do you think are going to be some of those legal implications? Okay, in in Vancouver there was a signage bylaw uh, which was supposed to regulate the number and the type and the appearance of uh, signs throughout the city in, in, also, in order to reduce what they called visual clutter. And that was uh, passed by the Vancouver City Council in advance of the, the Games. And sign, any signs celebrating the Games and enhance the festive atmosphere were, were approved by the Council. Now, there was a constitutional challenge under that. We have a Charter of Rights and Freedoms and with similar First Amendment protections as, as you have. And the city therefore amended its law uh, but but it, it does tend, tend to sort of set set some kind of precedent that this sort of thing could be done. Um, in um, in in other countries, um, for uh, for example, in Germany during the World Cup, um, the the Germans amended uh, certain laws which allowed the extended use of video surveillance systems, which tends to be more closely regulated in Germany. So you have those kind of those kind of legacies. Um, Changes certain changes to data protection or privacy laws, which permits <clears throat> maybe on a temporary basis more extensive sharing of data, more extensive use of video surveillance, and so on and so forth. So, so you do you do have those those um, those kind of legacies. You know, I wonder when when we're having laws that are created in you know just for a particular purpose that people don't have a chance to really negotiate and have all the hearings that they should have. It's almost like our Patriot Act, you know, after 9-11, that was like a a knee-jerk reaction. We had to do this quickly. There was, you know, a tremendous need, and it was quick, and you had to get it done, and people didn't really think through these things, and then we thought, well, it's only temporary, and then they've renewed the Patriot Act over and over again, and just recently again, when... You know, some of those things really needed to be debated more, and they just weren't. 
And so I wonder about, you know, some of these laws that were thrown in because they were needed for a particular, you know, because of of this mega event. But let me ask you, you know, what you're a poli sci person, you know, that the the, the political science and sociology, they're all so integrated. Um, What kind of what ramifications do you see with all of this increased surveillance and security at these mega events? How how does that affect really our fundamental rights to privacy? Um, I think more than anything else, it has legacies in terms of attitudes. Um, over and above the particular technologies, particular practices, and so on, I think it's the more intangible and subjective legacies that are perhaps more important. Um, in, in, and I think these events tend to produce a broader cultural acceptance of the new security practices and, uh, and the measures that are put in place and tends to legitimate them, whether, regardless of whether or not things go wrong. And as I said earlier, if no threat to security occurs, then planners can boldly assert that their extensive measures have worked. And if a threat does materialize, it can be conveniently explained by unforeseen gaps in the infrastructure and therefore used to ratchet up levels of security at the next event. So um, it, it, it tends to, mega events tend to reinforce existing structures and existing hierarchies and existing power imbalances um, that have been going on um, anyway, and increasing the levels and the intensities of surveillance in, a, in modern societies. So um, it's that issue that I think is the most important uh, lesson here. And when I think you know, of in, the, oppos- yeah. in opposition to that, if I could just continue, yeah, sure. you, tend to have these, you tend to have these privacy laws, which in some cases are, are quite strong, in other cases are quite weak, um, but underfunded and under-resourced privacy commissioners in Canada and elsewhere that really cannot do a great deal in the face of all of these pressures. And at the same time, a set of attitudes that, are, um, uh, that, that uh, tend to be dominant in the, 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 the public that, well, I've got nothing to hide, therefore I've got nothing to fear. Right, and, I, and, and they're more fearful of what the problems might be. Like, and then they, of course, use terrorism as the reason why we're doing this. So then everybody says, well, we have to do that to be safe. Because therefore, yes, yes, exactly. And so therefore it becomes a self, self-fulfilling prophecy. And any critical commentary, any naysayers, any people like me, as then interpreted as somebody who's sort of spoiling the event, spoiling the party, right. somebody who's, who's, who's not in favor of the spirit of competition and the Olympic Games and, you know, <laughs> shut up and get over it. Kind of thing, right? um, where, whereas, in fact, you know, the, the message here is, is not that, but the message is that, you know, all of this extensive security and, this, and these, this, this surveillance is, one, going to mean that there's going to be fewer and fewer places that are going to be seen as able to uh, host Olympic Games. Right. And those of us who are privacy advocates are going to stay home and say, we're going to watch it on TV and I don't want to go there. Well, <laughs> I'm I mean, not... that's happening anyway. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> that's, that's happening anyway. And yes. I was down in Australia when the Vancouver Olympics were going on. So, so you know, I was, <laughs> I, was a long, I was a long way away. But, but nevertheless, you know, um, it's, it's, it's not about a, a, a opposing the sport. It's not about a sport. But it, but it is about sort of raising some critical awareness that perhaps this is not in the best uh, atmosphere and the best 
um, traditions of international sporting events and, and civil liberties. And so, um, you know, we, we hope that, that um, in future events like this, people will uh, think more critically about what they're doing, say no to some of these measures, um, and, um, you know, perform real risk assessments, really critical risk assessments. And just give the website for the book? Yes, um, www.security-games.com. Well, thank you so much, Colin. We will have you back again, and thank you for bringing up these very critical issues. Okay, you're very welcome. Thank you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. and visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. See our upcoming guests, download podcasts, listen to archived interviews, and please write us emails about what's important to you in the information age. Thanks. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.